Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. This is our second week in our Sabbath practice in this series, Practicing the Presence. And it's all about learning a new way of living from Jesus by adopting the habits of his own life. And so this is not really a sermon series, it's a practice series. We're talking about practice. We're discipling ourselves by practicing the disciple the disciplines of his life. We're discipling ourselves to him by practicing the disciplines of his life. And so this is not about information. This is about transformation. And that comes as we learn, as we practice, and we reflect together in community. And so the reason that this is so important is If you want more on this, you can look back at last week's message, but the reason this is so important, and by the way, we've been planning this since the start of the year. This is part of our strategic initiative for the year, the presence of God. How do we seek the presence of God in our character and congregation more? And the reason I think this is so important is that our modern habits are not just tiring us, they are discipling us. Our modern habits of life are not just tiring us, they are discipling us. We talked about last week that everyone is being discipled. The only question, you don't get to choose whether or not you're being discipled. The question is, what are you going to be discipled to or by? And so our modern habits are discipling us in the practices of a world that lives as if there is no God. They're discipling us in the practices of a world that assumes that everything we are and everything we have depends on us. And so I want to read to you from the introduction to the Sabbath practice guide of the materials that we're using. We don't Sabbath because it's good for us, although it is. We Sabbath because we are apprentices of Jesus our rabbi and Lord. And to follow after Jesus is to adopt his overall lifestyle as our own. And it's to rearrange our daily life around his presence. Did you catch that? This whole thing is about arranging our daily life around his presence, practicing the presence. This is what the ancients called following the way. Jesus Sabbathed. So as you give yourself to this Sabbath practice, remember, all of this is an attempt to give ourselves more deeply to Jesus himself and let him do what no practice or teaching or book or podcast or technique could possibly do, which is give rest to our souls. So the end goal is not to practice the practice, the end goal is to give ourselves more fully to him that we would inhabit his presence consciously in our daily lives. That's the goal. 
So here's, I just want to put this out there. If you become an expert in Sabbathing and you get your PhD in all the historical practices and, you know, you get your, you know, MDiv and how to do it and teach people how to do it, and yet you miss him, you've missed it. You've missed it all. All right? So the goal is not the practices. The practices are a means to the end, which is him. All right? So I'm probably going to beat that dead horse, extra dead, through this series because it's one of those things that no matter how many times I say it, somebody's going to hear, oh man, it's another thing I got to do. And when I do it, then God will be happy with me. No, (laughs) no. Okay, so I'll, I'll beat that enough for the time being. I'll give you more next week. But our exercise for this week, it focuses on Sabbath as the practice of rest. And it's a kind of rest that is resistance to the world's discipleship. And I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach today. Last week, I stuck really closely to the teaching notes from the course materials. But this week, I'm really doing something that is an additional thing to that. So if you really want to get deeper into Sabbath as rest and resistance, I really recommend group facilitators, group leaders, send that video out to your groups because it's going to go deeper into that and give a lot more detail to this message. But I want to reflect today together on Psalm 16, and I want us to look at the problem of restlessness. Have you ever sensed the restlessness of being alive? You're laughing because you have. (laughs) And if you're not laughing... You might be feeling it right now. (laughs) Have you ever sensed the restlessness of being alive? It's what C.S. Lewis called the inconsolable desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. The scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we've never yet visited. What can give a name to that common thread of human experience. This is part of what we experience through life. So I was looking up to see if there were any terms to describe this, and I came, stumbled upon not one but two German terms. Germans, you know, one wasn't enough. <laughs> and someone's going to correct my pronunciation here, but <laughs> the first word is Zensucht. A longing or seeking for something that may or may not exist. Great word. And the other word is a longing for a place that you've never been. Don't laugh at my German, guys. Come on. It's not fire. I don't speak German. So two, I love those words. There's a lot of untranslatable words in German you find, and you, stu- you find that out when you study philosophy. But... They're really descriptive, I think, of this feeling. And I think the closest that we get in English is probably this word, restlessness. This endless, if we put those two German words together, it's this endless seeking for some thing or some home that we've not yet experienced. Or as Mick Jagger put it more simply, we can't get no satisfaction. (laughs) And it's because of this. St. Augustine, the great African theologian, 
In the fourth century, he said, you have made us for yourself, O God. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And so Psalm 16, I love it because it points us to the satisfaction of that desire. And it says our restlessness is a desire for the presence of God. And the presence of God is the place of eternal pleasure and fullness of joy. And so the reason you're listening to this message this morning that you happen to be within earshot of this message is that you probably already believe that. You probably already think that that's true or you're here listening because you hope that it might be true and you're checking it out. But what is the answer? The answer that we tend to get within our stream of Christianity the answer to this restlessness, we say, if you're feeling that, what you need to do is you need to get saved. You need to turn to Jesus, right? That's a good idea. (laughs) And so that's really what we see in verse one of Psalm 16, where it says, preserve me, O God, save me, O God. I'm taking refuge in you. It's the cry of the heart to say, God, save me, protect me. And so what we say is the way to experience what verse 11 says is that you need to do what verse 1 says. You need to say, God, save me. And when you say that, well, then you get to experience verse 11 when you die. You'll be in his presence and you'll enjoy his pleasure forevermore. So I don't know if you caught or noticed a a, a little bit of a gap there. (laughs) Do verse 1, and after you die, then you get to experience verse 11. And it leaves out a little, you know, dash called your actual life. (laughs) If we jump right from God save my life straight to talking about the afterlife, then we skip over your actual life. (laughs) And I think a lot of times the way the good news of Jesus, the gospel, has been preached, or at least understood, is that it's been reduced to something that you get to enjoy after you die. And the effect of that is that it detaches it from our everyday life. We're not really quite sure what to do with the rest of our lives. Even at the men's breakfast yesterday, on on my table at least, we were talking about, you know, you get saved and you know that you're going to heaven and like, why does God leave us around, right? Is it just to get other people into heaven when they die? And, you know, it was a good conversation. But (laughs) here's what I want to tell you this morning. The promises of Jesus are not just God's presence after we die. It's the promise that when you put your trust in him, he makes you a new person, he puts his Holy Spirit within you, and he says, I am present with you to the end of the age. Jesus said that. So he's present with you, and he's abiding within you through the Holy Spirit. And so this is not eternity after you die, this is eternity now. Eternity now. I didn't say paradise now. (laughs) I didn't say health, wealth, and prosperity now. 
I'm talking about a kind of life because Jesus didn't have all those things, you know, and he certainly had the life that he's talking about. So why should we expect any different? But that's a whole other story, another message. I'll go back to my notes. (laughs) He's talking about a kind of life, a kind of life that is so indestructible that poverty and sickness and even death can't touch it. That's the eternal life now, the eternal kind of life. So where, where does this come from? The very same fullness of joy in his presence. That's what we're, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the possibility of enjoying his presence now. A taste, a foretaste. And so I want to bring a little bit of definition to what we're talking about when we talk about presence, the, talk, the practice of presence in this series. We're not talking about God's omnipresence. That's not something you can practice. God's, he just is that. <laughs> we're not talking about his manifest presence, which is our preferred flavor of presence in our stream of the church. That's the kind of presence where God's, God invades and overwhelms our senses in a particular moment or, or experience. We're talking about his daily presence. We're talking about the kind of presence that Brother Lawrence described in the 17th century, his, his famous devotional book, The Practice of the Presence of God. Here's what he said. When we are faithful to keep ourselves in his holy presence and set him always before us, It begets in us a holy freedom and familiarity with God. By often repeating these acts, they become habitual. And the presence of God rendered, as it were, natural to us. In other words, this is about giving ourselves to the habits that open us up to the presence of God in our daily lives. That as we practice them, we find ourselves more and more attuned to the reality that he's there. I love the way one author puts it that every bush is burning with the presence of God. And so we're really talking about how do we get from Psalm 16 verse 1 to Psalm 16 verse 11 here and now? Is that possible? And what I want to do, I want to take a few moments here together to see if we can reverse engineer this psalm. So we're going to do it backwards, okay? I thought that was interesting. So, (laughs) verse 11 is the goal. And by the way, if you go and read Brother Lawrence's classic book, he's describing this kind of life. He's, He's describing a kind of life where he says, I am, I'm full of joy. I experience the pleasure of God's presence regularly when I'm doing my daily things. That's the kind of life that I, I, I want that kind of life, don't you? So if we start at that goal and work backwards, all right, we're going to reverse engineer this. We step back to verses 9 and 10 in the psalm. So you can follow along with me in your own Bible that you're holding. Verses 9 and 10 say this, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also rests secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One 
see corruption. Now, I want you to notice what David, uh, the writer of the psalm, is describing. He's describing what I would call holistic flourishing, holistic security. He's secure in spirit, soul, and body, which is a really good way to describe the kind of life and character that Jesus had. You never see Jesus anything but that. And so we said that the goal of discipleship is to learn from Jesus so we can become like him. And this is what Jesus was like. And yet, does that describe the majority of Christians or even you? (laughs) Does that describe the quality of our lives? And if not, why not? And I want to highlight just one potential reason, which I think is an imbalance in our discipleship. Okay, so here's the point. I'm going to say it and then explain it. We learn from Jesus not only by thinking and feeling, but by doing. We learn from Jesus not only by thinking and feeling, but by doing. So for the last several hundred years in the Western part of the world, um, we've been conditioned to think that the most important part of who you are is your mind. All right? It's a result of what's called the Enlightenment, and and even you could say the result of some of the emphases of of the Reformation, and those things were answering the questions of their day, and so there's a famous phrase that comes out of the Enlightenment, Uh, it's called, it says, I think, therefore I am, right? You heard that phrase before? It's, It's completely misunderstood and misapplied, but it's taken out of context to mean that the most important part of me is what I think, and so I think what it's led to in our present moment is that there's this almost complete separation between mind and body. What I think about myself and my identity is more primary than the physical. And you have to, that's a relatively recent understanding of what it means to be human. All right? And so we're in this cultural setting for the last few hundred years, and Much of the discipleship, if you look around at the Protestant, especially evangelical church, most of the discipleship, you'll notice, centers on knowing the right stuff. Right? And so, if you've been around church culture, at least in America, and you look at discipleship materials, most of them are geared towards learning and understanding scripture, learning and understanding doctrine. In other words, they're, they're what we could call left brain oriented. They're, they're oriented towards the analytical side of your mind. All right. And yet what we see is, and maybe you can testify to this, you can go through years of that kind of learning and training and some people eat it up and they grow like crazy and other people don't they don't really grow very much by that method. And so we talked about a book last year that was called The Other Half of Church and it was talking about the fact that, well, some people, they don't find that left brain stuff particularly helpful because the emotional and intuitive and experiential side of their person is so damaged and broken down. So for instance, if you've gone through serious trauma, You need to work on repairing that before going through a course study on, you know, biblical doctrine is really going to be able to take root in your character. 
So it's a great book. You can, you can go look that up, the other half of church. And so it talks about addressing the experiential, the emotional side. And so that's why, you know, we've put an emphasis on the last few years of pursuing emotionally healthy spirituality because it's, it's really important. We have two counseling, pastoral counselors on staff because it's really important to address that side of our humanity. So in our stream of the church, we're, we're in the Pentecostal charismatic stream of the church. We kind of recognize that, well, it's not all about the brain, all right? We kind of recognize our, our flavor is more the experiential. We recognize the power of, you know, dynamic worship and, and experiences and, you know, the touch of the Holy Spirit experientially. And so that's good and that's true and it's adding to that picture of our humanity. But I think one of the things that we seem to take for granted is a certain approach to learning. A certain approach to how we think we get transformed. All right? So what I seem to notice is that even within our stream of the church, we discover these things. We discover the need for emotional health. We discover the need for, you know, dealing with stuff. And we get these incredible insights and like the, the light bulb comes on. It's like, oh, wow, yeah, I really need that. And we think that because we've gotten that insight, that now we've been transformed. And the, it's, they're not the same thing. Information does not equals Transformation. And so, why do we do that? I think it's because uh, Alan Hirsch, he wrote the, the Forgotten Ways. He's a Jewish Christian writer, brilliant guy. And he pointed out that our Western culture and the Western church, it's largely based its approach to learning on what he calls the Greek model. So, you know, the ancient Greeks, they invented philosophy. They were all about the mind. The mind was primary. And their model was, you have to think your way into new behavior, you have to have right thinking in order to lead to right action. And Alan Hirsch points out that's actually the other way around from the Hebrew model. So the Hebrew model of learning, which is the one that Jesus employed, was quite different. If you notice, when Jesus invited Peter and John and Andrew and all the disciples, uh, he didn't invite them onto his philosophy degree course. Right? He invited them into an apprenticeship. He invited them into something that looked a lot more like a trade than it did an academic study. I don't know if you've noticed that, right? Come and I'll teach you how to fish people. Right? I'm going to teach you a skill. And so Jesus did, and they watched. Then they did together. And then the disciples did, and Jesus watched. And then the disciples went and taught other people. This is the process of apprenticeship. They practiced, and then they reflected together. Right? They did stuff, and then the disciples would come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, what in the world was going on with that? And they would reflect on it together. Right? And so the Hebrew model of learning was not thinking into new ways of acting, but acting into new ways of thinking. It's the opposite way around. And so 
What we're talking about when we're talking about these spiritual disciplines is we're, we're talking about recovering this ancient tradition within the church that is exactly this. It's ways of acting that as you pursue them, begin to shape new patterns of thought, new patterns of feeling as well. And so if we want to experience the security of body, soul, and spirit that Psalm 16 talks about, we not only need to think the right things and feel the right things, we need to do the right things. Okay? So the question is, naturally, what are the right things? (laughs) What do we do? So step back with me to verses 7 and 8. David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Now, if you look closely there, I think what we see is a pattern of his life being described. David is practicing the presence of God. How is he present to him? How is it that God is at his right hand? David says, I set the Lord always before me. Now, Yahweh, unlike all the other gods, did did not have physical handmade idols that you could set before you as an object to look at. So what is he talking about? Let me ask you this. Okay. Have you ever tried to set the Lord before you? As in like in your quiet time, in your, you know, solitude time of prayer, have you ever tried to focus your attention just for even 30 seconds on the presence of God? Have you tried to do that? If you've tried it, you will have discovered it's actually quite hard to keep the presence of the Lord always before you. It's really hard to do. And so it requires practice. How do we learn how to do that? Working backwards, I think what you see David doing is that He's taking counsel with God. He's talking to him. There's a conversational relationship there. He's practicing gratitude. He's practicing worship. And these are individual practices. He's not talking about temple worship. He's not saying, I am continually in the temple with the Ark of the Covenant before me or something. He's talking about, whatever I'm doing, the presence of God is continually before me. I set his, his presence before me continually. So th- this is my point. When we're asking, what do we do? The spiritual disciplines are the curriculum for Christ-likeness. That's my contention, and I've got some good backup in Christian history for that. The idea is that we become like him as we dwell in his presence. So if we dwell in his presence at all times, we become more and more like him. And we learn how to do that. We open ourselves up to that presence through these things called spiritual disciplines. Now, when I talk about a discipline, discipline sounds like a really bad thing. I'm really talking about an exercise, right? If you go to the gym, you, you do this just for a physical outcome, right? We're talking about spiritual disciplines, which are things that we do in our bodies for a spiritual outcome, all right? Which we said, it's his presence, it's him. We're trying to get close to Jesus, all right? And become like him. 
All right, so when I talk about spiritual disciplines, we're talking about practical habits that we can practice in our lives that disciple us to Jesus. A discipline is something that is within your power that as you practice it enables you to do something that is not directly in your power. Okay? So if you want to go on those TV shows with super strong, you know, men and women who like lift cars and pull trucks and stuff, right? I can't do that. I, I physically, I could go and like exert every ounce of effort and energy and mental fortitude that I have. I could not pull the truck. You know, I mean, who does these things, right? <laughs> but I couldn't do it, right? If I wanted to do it, how would I pursue doing it? Well, I'd have to go and work out a whole lot, eat a certain way, sleep a certain way. There would have to be a whole regime of exercise in order to enable me to do what I couldn't do at first. Does that make sense? So (laughs) I really want to make something abundantly clear at this point. Okay, I'm just going to beat that horse a little more. No matter how many times I say this, someone is still going to hear that I need to do these things in order to be a real Christian. It's not true. That's a lie. That's a falsehood. Okay? None of these things will make you a Christian. None of these things will make you a Christian. Guess why? Only Christ makes you a Christian. Christ in you makes you a Christian. And when Christ enters your life, you you put your trust in him and he enters your life, you become a new kind of person. Your being shifts from son of Adam to son of God. Daughter of Adam to daughter of God. Okay? It's a a change in your being. You can't do that. (laughs) Doesn't matter what you try and do, you can't do that. You become a new person. And so spiritual disciplines and discipleship, it's not about becoming a Christian it's about growing up into who you already are. You, if you're in Christ, these are the ways that will help you grow up in Christ. It's about pursuing maturity, not identity. Right? And that's got to be really, really clear. It's very easy to mix those things up. This is only possible for those who are already in Christ. All right? And so to grow up into this, just like you need a plan for your workouts and your nutrition and your sleep— to be able to do the crazy feats of strength, you need a plan to grow up into the fullness of, your, of, of Christ's character. It just, that's how it works. <laughs> and so, how many of us have a meal plan? How many of us have, a, you know, a, a career plan? How many of us track our steps? How many of us track how much water we're drinking through the day? Because we have a certain health transformation that we want to see. Do we have a plan for growing in Christ-likeness? Do we have a plan? Because guess what? It doesn't just happen. <laughs> it doesn't just happen. So why don't more of us do this? Well, let's step back to verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot, my chosen portion. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Dallas Willard, someone I mention a lot, says that the main reason that more Christians don't have a plan to grow in Christlikeness is not that they don't want to, it's that they never intend to do it. They never actually just decide to pursue it. And so, you know, to, to go back to like the health analogy, we all know 
because we all experience the new year every year, it doesn't matter how many gym memberships you have (laughs) if you never decide to use them, right? You have to actually intend to do it or or it's not going to happen to you, right? And so the psalm says, I have chosen to make the Lord my portion, my cup. I've chosen that he's going to be my food, my drink. He is going to be the thing that shapes me. And many of us have come to faith and we know that it's a nice idea to become like Jesus. But the question is, have we ever seriously decided that we're going to pursue him? That we're going to actually try and become like him? And so the point is that you must intend to learn his way. So let's step back again. Why don't we intend to do it? And we're going to run faster through these last ones. Why don't we intend to do it? Well, let's look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. Now I want you to notice there is an element of resistance here. We're talking, and the topic for this week is getting into the fact that Sabbath rest is an act of resistance towards the principalities and powers, the idols of this earth. To decide to follow Jesus, it's not the path of least resistance. And so maybe you know that and you have a sense of what it might take and you realize to do this, it's going to take self-denial. Like the the men's breakfast yesterday, we were looking at the, the verse that says, take up your cross daily and follow me. That's talking about a death to yourself. It takes walking in a different way. It takes rejecting the idols that our culture forces on us. And so that's probably the reason that many of us just never consider it because G.K. Chesterton said it best. He said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. (laughs) And so... Like I said, this is what it gets into in this this second week of of Sabbath rest. And one of the things that John Mark Comer covers in his his teaching in there is that the the Sabbath is commanded twice within the Torah, probably more times, but it's commanded twice within the outlining of the Ten Commandments, once in Exodus and once in Deuteronomy. And there's an interesting difference between the two. In Exodus, it says, remember the Sabbath because the Lord— created in six days, and then he rested. So it's, it's a reference to the creation narrative. But the second time that it references Sabbath, it says, observe it, and it gives a different reason. So Deuteronomy 5.15 says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. In other words, rest Remember the Sabbath in order to remember that you are not a slave. You are not a slave to the idols and the gods of this world. The gods, like Pharaoh, like the spirit of Egypt that try and measure you by your usefulness, by your productivity. You belong to the God who worked hard, yes, but he rested. And actually, your week starts with rest. You begin from a place of rest in God. 
And actually, it goes further than that. We are in a state of perpetual rest in Jesus. We are in the perpetual Sabbath, spiritually speaking. And so observing the Sabbath as a weekly rhythm, what it is, is it's actually an act of defiance towards those idols. To say, no, I am not going to be measured by that. I am measured by the love and the acceptance and the rest that belongs to me in Christ. We start from a place of love. We start from a place of rest. We don't need to work for those things. We have them. And you know what? When you, when you know that, when you can live in that, it changes how you work. So why do we find that resistance is all the more difficult in our day and age? Why, why, why does it seem like resting is such a difficult thing? All the conversations about rest and Sabbath that I've had this past week, they, they've all felt kind of heavy. It's like, oh, this is going to be really hard. I feel a lot of resistance. Well, why is that? Let's get back to verse 3. We're going to fly through these last two. Verse 3 says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. And I think one of the things that makes it particularly difficult in our day and age, is that our culture conditions us to think and act primarily as individuals, not as part of a community. And so, if you feel like you're out there and you're the only one resisting, you're the only one doing this, of course it's going to feel incredibly hard. And so, this is one of the reasons that we actually need to do this as community. We have to follow Jesus as community, we're not designed to do it alone. It will be much harder and maybe even impossible alone. (laughs) And so it's far easier to follow Jesus when you're part of a community that is also following him. And I can hear somebody saying, well, that's just because it props you up and, you know, it's just a crutch that, you know, other people... It's not just that. It's because it fits into the design of how we were made to be. And so, here's the point, is that joy-filled community is the soil for character growth. The Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation. To grow in community, we, sorry, to grow in character, we actually need community around us. For character growth to take place, that community has to be full of joy and also a place of keeping us accountable. Both of those things have to be in there. Otherwise, we don't have the soil to be able to to grow up in maturity. All right, so what is keeping you from giving yourself to that kind of community? For those of us who are yet to do that, what is keeping us? Skip back to verse two. It says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And so my question to you is, have you seen that? Have you seen that all the other good things that you could possibly give yourself to are a pitiful comparison to Jesus. Have you seen that? Because if you haven't seen that, well, you're, you're never going to feel particularly drawn to a bunch of people that do see that and want to pursue that. And so it's going to be very hard for you to get anywhere Here's the thing. Our hearts are dominated and directed by what we love, what we attach our loves to. And so the question is, what is your 
ultimate love attached to? What is the thing that in your heart you say, if I don't get that, I might as well not be here? Jesus must rearrange your other loves. If you want verse 11, it's got to come from a place of Jesus. I have to have you. If I don't get anything else, I have the best thing. If your love is not attached to the surpassing goodness of God, you'll never see the beauty of... Look look at how this cascades. If it's not attached to the surpassing beauty of God, you'll never see the beauty of community with his people. His people will never be delightful to you. Trust me. You'll never have the courage and support to resist the idols that are vying for your love and attention. Which means you'll never make the choice to become like him and do what's necessary to become like him, which means you can't experience the kind of life that he has, that he's inviting you into. And so we end up back at verse one, which is this. Rest begins by turning to him. And so if you've never turned to him this morning, if you're here, if you're in Mukunji, if you're online, I want to tell you, this is the kind of life that he's inviting you into. And it doesn't begin after we die. It's eternity now. We don't need to earn it. He gives us that life as a gift. And he changes us from the inside out. But what we get to do is participate in the process of our growth and maturity. We work out that salvation in fear and trembling, into our character, our thinking, feeling, doing. And so my plea to you this morning, if that's you, turn to him. Turn to him. And find out if he's really as good as he's cracked up to be. Turn to him and find out. And get among other people who see it. And when you do that, expect resistance. Internally, externally. But choose the better portion and get a plan in place for how you're going to grow. And so I'm going to end on the note of just giving us our exercise for this week and, and we can have the team back up and finish with a song if you have one prepared. Here's our exercise as we're pursuing the practice of Sabbath rest, okay? And I'm just going to run through this, and, and if, you, if you're doing this, you need to go look at the um, practice guide, and it, it'll give you lots of helpful um, tips and suggestions and a lot more info on, on what this means. But here's our exercise for the week. Prepare. You've, last week, you chose a day. You chose some rituals to Sabbath on, to rest, to stop. Well, here's your exercise for this week. Number one, prepare for the day, because guess what? It takes preparation to actually rest. Like when you're going on vacation, you got to do a whole bunch of stuff so that you can go on vacation. There was a Sabbath day. There was also a day of preparation, all right? So figure out what you need to prepare to be able to actually rest on the time you've set aside. Number two, prepare for external resistance. It doesn't take a lot of foresight to realize I might get notifications on my phone on the Sabbath day. This might happen. That might happen. So maybe you need to turn your phone off. Maybe you need to like... Not be around the TV if you know that the TV just sucks the, you know, the life out of you. Choose the things that you need to say no that are distracting you, all right? And then lastly, prepare for internal resistance. And you do that by recognizing, paying attention 
to what you're feeling and journaling, writing it down. So like I said, there's lots of great instruction in the guide. And I'm going to invite us to just stand together and I'm going to close in prayer for this message. Jesus, our desire in this series, in this moment, in this life of the church is to grow closer to you. Jesus, we need you. For the sake of our families, for the sake of our world, for the sake of the life that we were made to live, Lord Jesus, we need you. And so, Lord, as we give ourselves to, this, to these practices, as we disciple ourselves through these habits, Jesus, would you come and meet us? Would you open our hearts and our lives up to a greater degree of your presence? That it would become habitual, become natural to us. Lord, and that you would transform us and mature us into your likeness as we do that. Lord, this week as we give ourselves to Sabbath rest, would you give us your grace, Lord, to start where we are, not where we think we should be, but to start where we are, to realize that if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly at first, <laughs> and to practice. Lord, and that as we do that, as we give ourselves to, to that, that you would cause the growth. So give us your rest, Lord Jesus. Deepen our souls and our spirits and our bodies. And we pray in your name, Lord. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.